The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. So the book Media Politics in China, Improvising Power and Authoritarianism, it presents an account of um, more marginalized practices um, in the media sphere, as opposed to the mainstream practices of propaganda and uh, the obvious notions of control in Chinese media spheres, looking at critical journalists and the party. But before we get there, the kind of the common depictions of Chinese media uh, tend to be focused on propaganda, right? And this is an image of, uh, uh, you know, who, all those officials, <laughs> the standing committee, the glorious committee, uh, basically pledging allegiance to the flag, and it looks like they're about to sing or something. It looks very interesting. So there, was, there were a lot of satirical comments on Weibo as well about this image, but the notion of this image being propagated and spread all around, obviously, Sihuan News and uh, global media channels that China is engaged with, as well as other media outlets, just shows you to the extent to which propaganda is still obviously a very important function. That's what we hear about the most, that the Chinese media is a loyal, um, fearful agent of the only powerful party state that exudes very little tolerance towards its critics. So other than being channeled to work towards propaganda, they're also censored by, they're, they're forced to work with censorship, right? They're tightening their borders in terms of censorship. They're also uh, threatened by coercion, as you see here, an activist uh, being held um, throughout by police, and there are more policemen and activists, a very typical scene right, when we think about social protests in China. And uh, when we hear about China in contrast to other states, it tends to be a country with one of the most difficult um, uh, environment when it comes to press freedom. So we see China is alongside with Iran, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, that these are the friends that China has on press freedom rankings at the very bottom of the list. So it's one of the toughest environments to be a journalist, essentially. When we think about hardship, that's the environment that we think about is China. And when we do talk about uh, voices of resistance, right, those who tend to speak against the system, we tend to invoke dissidents, so the ones who are completely anti-system, uh, that speak against the whole party. And Ai Weiwei is a great example of, I'm sure many of you, all of you probably know about Ai Weiwei and his art, in which he really directly challenges uh, the party state head on, head on, right, through various acts of social media protests, through his art, and so forth. These are the kind of voices that we tend to hear about the most, I think, and to also romanticize those voices when it comes to Chinese resistance. But what's happening beyond this imagery of collision between the openly powerful party state and a few isolated dissident kind of voices is the practice of what I describe as critical journalism that emerged in China over the past several decades and it has been evolving and reinventing itself over time. This practice draws on investigative, in-depth, and editorial coverage of contentious social issues. And on this image, you just see some examples of those issues, like the environmental pollution on the, on the left or on the right, depending on where you're sitting. This is obviously a huge crisis that China is facing, still to be solved, right? That's something that's very much in the process of being addressed, but on the minds of every Chinese citizen. And here you see a picture that's basically depicting the food safety crisis. In China, a bunch of fake ingredients being you know, thrown into this bowl and then sold to gullible consumers who are not so gullible anymore because they're very concerned about food safety. But this is just an example of what kind of issues get, get investigated, get treated with a lot of caution uh, by Chinese journalists. Other issues include social access you know, to education, uh, social welfare, uh, hospital violence, the treatment of migrants, uh, all sorts of matters that arise in Chinese society that don't really focus on democracy per se or revolution, but the concern is actually distribution of public goods and uh, the quality of life in China. So where those journalists practice, there are diverse platforms where these journalists reside and attempt to um, practice critical journalism. They include commercialized news outlets that many of you I think in this room are familiar with, I see. So I think Southern Weekly, which is now declining, has been declining for a while in its influence, but used to be really the prime example of critical journalism. There is also investigative journalism within state media, uh, which is controlled in different ways, and I'm happy to talk more about that. It's more tightly controlled, but nonetheless, they also embark on various investigations, um, and some of them do NATAN on internal reporting, which doesn't go out to the public, but it goes to officials themselves. So that's also meaningful in terms of collecting information and holding officials accountable. There are freelance journalists writing on social issues, and most recently there's the fusion of online and offline investigations on platforms like Monpai, Tencent, and Soho, that some of you might be familiar with, amongst other platforms. So even though now I just see we're seeing a decline in some ways in traditional investigative journalism, we're seeing new genres, new forms also arising, and I'm happy to give you more examples of those later on. So the overarching questions that I'm concerned with in this book is why does the party state that tends to be so suspicious of liberal media and so obsessed with political stability, why would it tolerate some of these critical voices? 
uh, some spaces for critical journalism. And why would journalists, uh, given all the risks of entering this kind of profession and the small likelihood of changing anything, why would they embark in critical reporting? And most importantly, how do two actors manage their delicate relationship? How do they coexist uh, with each other? And what explains this continuing perseverance? More broadly, I think the China case also speaks to journalistic resistance uh, in basically highly impressive political context. So it's not just about China, but if we think about it as a case study, we can also apply some of its findings, some of its nuances to other cases to think about resistance or agency, rather, of journalists more broadly in other you know, contexts beyond, beyond the Chinese case. The approach I took in the book, it, it's unique in the sense that I really fuse the top-down and the bottom-up perspectives on this issue. So I interviewed both uh, officials, central propaganda department officials, and other media regulating officials and scholars, as well as many journalists and, and editors. So it's really trying to combine the two perspectives and read their discourses read and talk to them to understand how they treat and relate to each other. I focus both on routine interactions, the day-to-day -day responses, and also how the terrain that binds them shifts during major crisis events, like the Wenchuan earthquake and repetitive coal mining disasters. And then I conclude with a comparison of Russia and the Soviet Union and C versus Kujitao era. So there's quite a comparative kind of element to this book. And empirically, draws heavily on, on field work. So I spent about a year in the field on and off and interviewed 120 people. Their in-depth interviews, some of them lasted from an hour, from an hour to a whole day. And a lot of participant observations, and dinners, gatherings, investigative journalism conferences where I observed all this dynamics in practice. And also reading the reports, the actual texts, trying to understand how do journalists write, you know, how do they express critique, how does it compare to the way that journalists write, say, in our context, in our society, what's unique about Chinese investigative reporting. And the key argument that I put out in the book is that instead of seeing this kind of relationship as a really tense collision, we should think about that as a fluid partnership, where journalists and the state are fused together by shared objectives, primarily of improving governance very broadly, improving the political status quo. And the way that this relationship is maintained and reinvented is through constant acts of guard improvisation, or creative acts of negotiation between journalists and officials. So precisely because this relationship is so flexible, the boundaries are flexible, they're able to reinvent their roles, their perspectives, and their actions over time. So they're not bound to very strict rules. But at the same time, that's also weakness because it ends up translating into less space, in some ways, for critical reporting. And it's always you know, obliged to serve the party's interests, as I'll go into in more detail. So I'll walk you through those arguments step by step uh, to illustratable examples from, from the book. So to start with cooperation, the party state grants journalists an ambiguous consultative role within the system, and journalists align their agenda to that of the central state. So starting with a party state and media oversight role, even though we often hear, for the most part, about propaganda rights, guidance of public opinion, an alternative function of the media has emerged in Chinese discourse, and it's the word that's being used as Yuhun Diandu, so public opinion supervision. And the term itself is rather vague, and I'll go into the vagueness a bit later, but the idea is that there's this role for the media to supervise local level officials, not highest level officials, not the system, but the local level governance, and to provide certain feedback, public opinion feedback, back to the state, to kind of try to understand public grievances and to bring them outwards uh, to authorities, but also to the public itself. The media is invited to play a constructive role, which is an interesting term that we don't hear so much about here. What does it mean to be constructive? It means to present more hopeful sentiments and solutions to crises, as opposed to solely you know, reporting the negative news. As one propaganda official told me, cursing alone will not solve anything. If you curse something, you have to fix it. <laughs> and of course, that's a huge burden on journal journalists, right? If you're thinking about American context, solving crisis, that's, that's not really journalism job, right? But in Chinese society, there's kind of expectation. You can't solve it, at least you should be a little hopeful. Otherwise, that's really not, not so welcome as a, as a critique. You have to provide some hopeful sentiments. So what about the journalists and their aspirations and practices? I would argue that even though many of them are highly dissatisfied and cynical about the system, the overarching kind of umbrella that they put themselves in or that I analyze them as being in as change makers within the system, as opposed to dissidents or someone like Iowa Wake who's tackling the system head on. So as one of the organizers of investigative journalism conferences told me uh, several times throughout my trips in Beijing is that I don't want to be a dissident critiquing China from afar. I want to remain within the system and contribute to it from within. So that said, this guy has been cut down in terms of his conferences. He's been pushed by various authorities. He hasn't had an easy life, essentially, in China. But still, he's refusing to be cut off from the system because he fears that his lack of access will translate into essentially ineffective practices in society. 
this is going to become an isolated voice in the US or elsewhere. There's nobody, nobody really is concerned with. So this, this change maker in the system also translates itself into the objective of improving versus revealing. So a lot of editors I spoke to high-level magazines like Taitin, Taisin, talked about this notion that in Western media, the key focus is on revealing the truth, right? You, again, you leave the facts and the rest is for the public to figure out. But in Chinese context, that's not enough. You have to be more balanced and more constructive, and this balance presents both an opportunity for change, but also a way to protect your space within the system. So they're highly aware that that's a tool as well, it's a strategy to be kind of treated with more sort of reason, not to be censored as tightly and to be sort of treated with more regard by the state. So this improvement translates itself into various kinds of reports that include solutions at the end of their actual investigations. So many reports that I analyze, they will talk about how a crisis should be solved when it comes to coal mining disasters, for instance. Taitin magazine had a whole story and kind of an agenda to commercialize the mining sector. So instead of the state owning the sector and regulating at the same time, the state should let go of the ownership and only regulate that sector. So a lot of those reports they looked almost like consulting documents, that's, which that's what you should do. Like on consulting, you should do this. These are all the experts who think so. These are the global experts, these are the Chinese experts. There's no way you should go against this. And in the end, you know, they did. But at the same time, the attempt was made to really kind of push forward a certain policy agenda by the media. Oftentimes, it also happens in the most subtle ways. Instead of having a full-on agenda, you draw comparisons to other cases. So in the case of the Wenchuan earthquake, the aftermath of the earthquake, comparisons were made to Taiwan, to Japan, showcase how other systems, how other countries dealt with you know, earthquake preparation and reconstruction better or in more efficient ways. Instead of critiquing China, they're just saying, well, there are other ways in which this could be done. You should learn from those cases, uh, including the US, and drawing on foreign experts and so forth. That's really an interesting example as well. Some of them also provide solutions um, just by, through interviews, interviewing foreign experts and kind of you know, plugging that interview in there, that's not a journalist opinion, somebody else said that, so that's okay. So that's another way to kind of, you know, provide this facet of improvement. And sometimes if you really can't improve anything in any way, then at least you should provide certain kind of hopeful narratives. So to give you an example of GDP numbers, uh, Taisin journalists uh, shared that, you know, a funny example of the last summer, was that when Western media talks about Chinese GDP, the focus tends to be on the decline, or kind of the Chinese economy is declining, it's not growing as fast, you know, we should all be concerned. And Chinese reports talk about stable GDP numbers. There's stability. Same numbers <laughs> over and over. And they're lower than in the past, but they're still the same over the past year, for instance. That's the focus. So we're not going down. We stay, we're remaining the same. That's a good thing. That's how they present the story. So it's about framing also. Framing of stability, which kind of alludes to potential for improvement versus a potential for catastrophe, right? That's, that's how the boards go on in Western media. And the focus of local level failures, again, something that the state tends to tolerate more than a central level investigation, is something that comes up in most interviews and in most of their reports. Very rarely do journalists tackle high level issues or central officials or uh, the system itself. So most of the reports that I've read, they really focus on local level issues and local level officials who should be held accountable. And they focus on that with rigor, but they're very sort of timid when it comes to going upwards in that ladder. So the higher you're looking at the responsibility ladder, the more diffused the criticism becomes. It becomes more vague, individuals are not named, so it's hard to say who is guilty, and so forth. And at local level focus, uh, the only exception to that is the recent anti-corruption campaign, where we see some commercialized news outlets and outlets like Pompeii tackling high-level officials, but those officials are already investigated by the party. So some of the journalists jokingly said that they're being invited to help. Meaning that you know we're already scrutinizing this guy. Why don't you help us out and dig up more corrupt stories and make a bigger case out of it? But that's not the same thing as starting your own investigation. So it's, again, it's a very controlled um, case of being a critical journalist. So so far, you might see this picture is kind of too perfect, right? These two actors just come together, help each other out. You know what could possibly be wrong with that? It's a very um, sort of satisfying scenario in some ways. But of course, their relationship is really tense because. There's often conflict about what should be improved at what time, what issues should be addressed and when, what's sensitive on a daily basis changes you know, for officials and for the public. So what happens is there's constant negotiation happening despite this overarching umbrella of partnership. So when it comes to official improvisation, starting with their discourse on you know, Yulun Tiandu itself, the concept, it's very vague, right? it's really broad and it's very much focused on discourse versus policy because there's no law that protects journalists. There's no press law, despite a lot of effort from Chinese activists and lawyers and journalists to pass a press law. There's nothing that protects journalists institutionally when they're engaging in investigative reporting. And uh, there's 
the only policy that exists exists in speeches. So on paper, it's kind of this is the discourse. So many scholars and journalists would trace those discourses carefully and look for a sign of hope. If something is there, a certain term is there, that means that maybe there is hope for something. And if the term is not there, that might mean that darker time is coming, that there is no more hope. So, so to give you an example from Xi Jinping's recent speech, National Party Congress speech, I read it over the weekend, and I found that it's really exciting. <laughs> a lot of readings. But yeah, I found that he didn't really talk about media policy in terms of Yilun Jandu uh, at all. He had that term only come up with one paragraph where he talks about public supervision more broadly. So the public should supervise the state through various channels, including this public opinion supervision through the media. But there is no special policy devoted to media supervision anymore, and it used to come up more in the discourse of the media. So you have a whole paragraph on propaganda, and at the end, oh, there's also public opinion supervision. We welcome that too. But now that doesn't come up anymore. So to me, that's a signal that maybe there's you know, more of a disregard for this media role and less of an attempt to co-op journalists to practice this. Uh, but again, this is a signal. So you can't take it completely seriously because that's just a speech. So maybe he's not thinking those things at all, but that's how people interpret this, the science from the state. But most of the improvisation happens at the level of restrictions. That as much as we hear about this omnipowerful state and the red lines, you know, we think about Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan, all those issues that can't be covered, there's a handful of issues that actually can't you know, ever be touched. But many other issues there are being supervised, so to speak, or constrained on a daily basis. And depending on how popular a certain discussion is on social media, like how much people are talking about this incident online, and also how local officials, how much they're trying to pass a censorship ban, how many networks they have to you know, influence higher level officials to say, hey, this story is dangerous, you should censor it. Depending on those factors, you might get a very different uh, reaction from, from authorities when it comes to restricting a certain, certain issue area. And the proof of that is that a lot of censorship happens preemptively. As much as, again, we think about deletions, and that happens too, uh, about 50% of content never makes it into print, which means that journalists who are in the field are getting phone calls, messages from their editors, and saying that the story has been cut. You have to come back to your desk. And it's one of the most frustrating things for journalists who invested so much time into reporting on something to be told to return to the desk and basically forget about this important issue that they've been you know, worried about for weeks or months, you know, for weeks or months of their lives. And as an investigative journalist, you tend to take long-term kind of projects, so it's really frustrating. But the fact that it's preemptive suggests that there's constant adaptation and adjustment, that something that wasn't sensitive just about maybe a day ago or a month ago suddenly has become so based on how much the public cares about it. And this issue could be really local, very much a small-scale incident, but because people are talking about it, the state treats it with caution, and things get censored. And of course, there's a lot of that restriction also happening post-factum, and also in terms of information access, just being able to interview an official. That's a really big barrier for many reporters. But the most important one when it comes to this fluidity, I think, is the preemptive function of, of uh, censorship and control. And lastly, when it comes to media, so to response to media investigations, so what happens once investigations come out? What does the government do? You know, do they respond to those kind of allegations? The response also features certain ambiguities. So on the one hand, there's a reaction that if something come out, comes out like the school collapse case, right? All the schools were obviously poorly constructed. The reaction was to reconstruct the schools and then to propagate this kind of vision of um, Sichuan as being fine. Everything is going back to normal. We have new schools that look great and they're even better than the old ones. So things are actually getting better. But then the other part of that the accountability part is not being addressed. So nobody was held accountable, and journalists were basically prohibit, uh, prohibited from exploring this issue further. They couldn't dig deeper after the policy response was pushed forward. So once they said, this is what we're doing, then you shouldn't touch on this anymore. And even though some journalists tried to do so, the space has been really, really tight, very small over the past years. Every year when I go back, journalists still share that it's very sensitive to talk about which earthquake in a critical way, in an investigative manner. So journalists in this particular space of restrictions at the gray zone, how do they engage with this really complex environment is that they find their own ways right, to negotiate the rules. So starting with the discourse, reinterpretation of discourse, or a discourse strategy, this is just an example from one of the Yulutian two conferences that one of the participants here, Vivian, has been part of for many years and co-organized. But this is an example of a, you know, a typical red banner Right? In China, hang up to usually kind of propagate an official message, like here's what the party's doing, here's how you should watch out for yourself, here's the new environmental law, or you know, something that's very kind of official. But this is actually inviting students and faculty to attend the Yunjiandu conference, the media oversight conference. And they're using the exact official term, Yunjiandu, in a way to kind of make it more legitimate in the eyes of the party. And the discussions 
sort of on site, the ones that took place during the day, were also quite sort of benign. They didn't really touch upon very sensitive, controversial issues. But in the off hours, you know, in the after hours, there was a discussion about the role of the media in the collapse of the Soviet Union, which to me was really fascinating. And it was clearly sensitive because everybody was sitting around listening to this one lady um, talk in a very small voice about the role of the media and how you know it ended up contributing to the collapse of the whole system. Obviously, an anti-model for China is one of the most few scenarios. And the fact that this was a conversation and it was held sort of openly in the aftermath of this event just shows to you how you can use certain terms and certain labels uh, to create a more controversial discussion. And if, if you want to get published as an author about the topic of media oversight, you should use the official terms, otherwise you're not going to get published, you're not going to get through the censors as an academic or as a reporter. So in this case, this was to be quite handy, just to have those terms, it's better than not having them, because otherwise you don't have anything to grapple with or to align yourself with. But most of the negotiation happens at the level of political pressures. So when the pressures come through, or before they even hit the journalists, there are ways in which journalists outrun them or negotiate them. So just to give you examples from the preemptive censorship side, journalists use microblogs, uh, social media, as well as um, extraterritorial jurisdiction, in the sense that they report on other areas where they're not based. So instead of reporting on Beijing, they'll go to Shanghai. And if they're Shanghai-based, they'll go to Guangzhou, and so forth. And they also often outweigh censorship bans. So instead of publishing something immediately, they would wait it out and collect many stories together and then present kind of a long investigative report about a certain issue in one go, as opposed to kind of having a one-by-one -one incident discussion. And I think the microblogging part in social media, I just want to kind of explain it a bit further, is that um, there is this notion of using social media for collecting information online, so just like the state is closely watching social media to observe what's being like a hot issue, what's to censor, Journalists are watching it very closely to figure out what's the hot issue they can report on and outrun censorship. And sometimes they even hack into other WeChat circles and try to learn you know, what the other groups are talking about. So last summer, one of the really young journalists, he's about 21 years old, shared with me how he hacked into a police circle. Uh, he spent $40 on this hack. I don't know who gave money to whom, but I guess he just had a friend who's a policeman or something. And he ended up hacking into the circle and learning what policemen think about the media. But also what their concerns are, you know, what their issues are that they're talking about amongst themselves. He found it fascinating, I don't know if he wrote about it, but he thought it was a great kind of sign for him that maybe he could hack into more groups and learn about more discussions and just kind of be more controversial. And this was a very quiet, you know, sort of thin, serious guy. He didn't look like some kind of a real troublemaker, but he was. So it was really fun to see this kind of, the image, that, you know, his image didn't represent someone who did such things, but he, he did. So there's this idea, there's also the notion of collecting information from each other. So a lot of journalists in this community are spread out across different regions. And as I mentioned before, they work together, right, in terms of cross-territorial supervision. So the way to work together, to collaborate, is often through social media platforms. They find each other, and it's also the users, social media users or common citizens, find journalists through those platforms and to, to relate their stories. So sometimes journalists is the last hope, is the last kind of channel to hold an official accountable to get certain resolution, they go through social media to find and locate those potential allies in their cases. And lastly, social media can also be used to expose uh, malgovernance or kind of mal maltreatment on behalf of the state. So if journalists, for example, are sleeping in a hotel room, they wake up the next morning during their investigation, they find red envelopes stuck outside their doors, and then suddenly, well, not very suddenly, but you know, five minutes later, police arrives and accuses them of corruption, then they're detained, and there are many cases like that. This goes all over social media, and there's a lot of discussion, and eventually, you know, hopefully within days, maybe weeks, these journalists get released because of the public pressure on that particular case. So it's, very, it's a very important tool, a very important channel for journalists in negotiating uh, censorship. And lastly, when it comes to policy response, there's less space for negotiation. As I mentioned, the state doesn't tolerate questioning when it comes to policy response. Once I decide what I'm doing, you shouldn't be asking me any more questions. That's kind of the relationship there. But even in that case, journalists often try to negotiate. So for instance, with the Wenchuan earthquake case, uh, a few years down the road after the earthquake, some reports came out that questioned the distribution of money to schools. So only a few schools got the money, but then other schools were not funded enough. So the construction was uneven, and some even pointed that they were not safe. So there were certain safety features that are missing, which suggests that actually there is more um, you know, corruption at stake in Sichuan, and the system itself didn't didn't work that well, there's still lack of accountability. So in this case, again, it was journalists who ended up um, pushing the state further to at least acknowledge and to let the public know that they shouldn't trust the government because they're not doing everything that they promised. So 
despite this kind of act of improvisation as being almost symbiotic, right, the two actors, and oftentimes it's more than two actors, local <coughs> officials, central officials, and journalists working together in this kind of dance, right, they dance around each other and try to uh, make peace with this constricted reality of critical reporting, which is feared by the party, but sort of tolerated and also embraced by journalists, but within a very confined limits. Uh, this relationship keeps, you know, keeps being very much guarded when it comes to these improvised acts. So the party states that's the key for interactive improvisation, the scope and the tune. So if we think about the very concept of media oversight in China, the idea is that you're supposed to work with the party, you're not supposed to go against the party. So that already is a pretty constraining space. Unless you work with the party, you're not welcome to be critical journalists, really. So that alone sets a particular scope for how far you can go. And journalists, to borrow this third term here, they resort to tactical strategies within the structures imposed by the state. They don't challenge the structures, but they kind of walk around the streets. If you think about the city, where people navigate the city, you just navigate the street, the alleys, the dark alleys, but you're not you know, tackling the whole city structure, so to speak, if you think about the Communist Party. An example of that, I think, that really resonates with me in terms of how guarded improvisation is, uh, is the example of Nafang Jomo Saddam weekly protest in 2013, where um, it was kind of discussed the waste Western media as an act against censorship. There's this movement, hopeful movement, almost like a democratic movement, that's springing up in China. At that time, I wrote an op-ed that argued that Chinese journalists are not revolutionaries. It was not exactly the title that shows, but the meaning is there in the sense that this act of protest still very much featured all the different elements I've described to you throughout this talk. They were, it was a local act. Uh, they were opposed against local censor in Guangzhou, and they also appeal to central state to protect them, to so saying that basically, you know, give us more space and give us more room um, to do what we do because we do it well, and it's good for society, it's good for China. But it wasn't this case of saying, hey, all of censorship was wrong, and we're absolutely, you know, against that. That's something that they don't, uh, they haven't channeled through their sort of speeches, their writings, and also who you see here are mostly members of the public. Journalists were not really engaging with them; they were not allowed to speak to the public, and they were staying behind closed doors, negotiating the rules and going back to work as usual. And as a result, partially, the influence of that media has also really declined, right? They kind of were not able to recreate that space. But the example I think is fascinating where you look at the protest and you just assume that this is kind of a romanticized resistance we often think about in the West. This is something against the party. It's huge, it's exciting, everybody's gonna join forces. But it remained local, even the most, you know, daring act of protest, which rarely happens in China, remained very much focused on particular individuals, in particular locale, not focusing on the system at large. And we haven't seen any protests since then, and I think it's unlikely we're gonna see more of those acts in the future, the near future, considering how difficult it is to practice journalism in the sea era. So, to, con to conclude just on a few implications, there are many I could go into, but I just wanted to conclude on a few points uh, and to give it over to you in terms of questions for discussion. The first of all, I think one of the takeaways is that limited media oversight or critical reporting does persist in the Chinese context, even to this day. So as much as we think about this monolithic system of control and um, dissent when it comes to Iowa and figures like that, there are other ways of resistance in the media context that are, are still alive and they're still functioning and working. There are many examples I can give to you if you're interested in terms of how it works in the current time, in particular this year and the past two years. So this role is still there and the fact that it's there, we can also compare it to other cases. The practice of media supervision, investigation, exists in many authoritarian regimes. Uh, but of course in a very, you know, very much um, in a capsule, in a, kind of, in a particular place and time. So that said, if we think about any context, Russia, China, Iran, if we think about uh, the Middle East, before the Arab Spring there were many articles talking about these capsules of critical reporting. It's never a complete control. Control never manages to forcefully, you know, go off everyone and control everything. Now that is an intent to some ways beneficial for the state to have some of those movements continue as long as they're not threatening the status quo. The second point here, the critical journalism that double-edged sword for the regime. So on the one hand, it's clear that a little bit of critical reporting is useful. You get to know more about various social issues, you can maybe try to hold local officials accountable, it seems like a good thing. But at the same time, when you allow those kind of forces to exist, you're also in a constant kind of cycle of responding to various social issues. So the state has to acknowledge them, react, respond, and constantly kind of uphold its credibility. So in that sense, it kind of opens a can of worms of expectations, uh, public expectations of uh, official reaction, essentially. But that's something that's pretty difficult to sustain. And especially in a regime that's not transparent, where there are no you know, really strong accountability mechanisms, it's not easy to sustain that kind of image. But that's something they have to sustain in order to remain, I think, legitimate amongst the public. 
And lastly, during the simulations as a benchmark of the boundary of permissible resistance, I think it's a really important case to watch out for, to kind of think about as a signal of what's really allowed in China, like how much resistance can we sort of expect to see. Because it's one of the most sensitive sectors. But at the same time, it's an inclusive area where you see all kinds of professionals being engaged in this, in this kind of practice from different cities, uh, urban locales with international experiences. So judging on like how this is going, you can also understand like is China changing? Like, to what extent are we seeing sort of a more coercive um, and difficult environment? Or in some ways, are we overstating that and maybe some things are remaining the same? It's sort of a, a kind of a symbol or a sign I think, that we can use to assess state-society relations in China beyond the media. So I'll stop there and I'll take your questions. Thank you. Thank you. say very much about your comparison me, with the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, and Russia, Putin. Will you add something on that? Yeah, absolutely. Let me just go extra slide on that. A lot more I can talk about. Stay here all night. <laughs> I don't think you want to do that. So this is the, the Russia comparison, first of all. The comparison doing is between uh, so contemporary China and Putin's Russia. Interviewed a number of investigative reporters in Moscow, kind of similar capsules, so to speak, of critical reporting that we would find in China, like how far can you go within the system? And I found that the relationship is quite distinct. Russian journalists in the state, Chinese journalists in the state. In the case of Russia, we see a tense and disconnected cohabitation. So the first feature here is colliding, colliding objectives. So the state tolerates critics in, in Russia for the purpose of image making as opposed to governance. And by image making, I mean a projection of an image of a more democratic Russia. Russia still really portrays itself as a democracy, even though it's not uh, by any measures, but it, it, it portrays itself as such. So as a result, it's useful to have plurality of voices, you know, to kind of maintain that imagery of critique, that there are people who really critique Putin, that means it's a democracy, right? That's, that's, that's what it takes. So a lot of the times when Putin is asked about freedom, one of his responses was, well, you know, there are over 3,000 newspapers in Russia, and I can't possibly control all of them. I don't know how to say this, but you know, he's very stern <laughs> and uh, dismissive of any critique. But another comment he made was about Anna Politkovskaya, you know, famous Russian journalist, probably the most famous, who was gunned down outside her elevator uh, in her home. And uh, what he said about that was that the damage that sort of this caused um, Russia was mainly the damage coming out of her death, like the whole image of Russia as being the capital of journalist murder, so to speak, as opposed to her reporting. So her reporting did nothing, he's saying. He just got, this doesn't matter. Her critiques, nobody cares. But what really mattered was that she was killed, and now we look really bad in the, you know, just the international image. And that also tells you about the fact that the Russian government barely cares about these investigations. They ignore pretty much everything, and a lot of critiques that came out in Russian media concerned the wealth of Putin himself, the palaces he's built over time, the immense wealth that he's been you know, collecting. And, uh, and his cronies have been as well. And none of that has been really publicly addressed. It's completely ignored. And the public itself has been ignoring it. There's such a comfort with corruption in Russia that even those kind of images that I think in, in Chinese case would probably stir quite a bit of uproar, and I think certainly here in, in the West, but in Russia, the team seem to be kind of taken for granted. Like, of course he's, he has palaces, he's Putin. Like, you know, what do you expect? Like, it's not a big deal, and I, you know, whatever. Like, let's just go on with our days. So there's this very different image. And then uh, when it comes to critics, Russian investigative reporters, their goal is to change the system. So they don't aspire to things within the system change makers that Chinese journalists um, still kind of adhere to this framework. Russian journalists want to be sort of social movement leaders in many ways. They want to change things. So in 2011, 2012, you remember the White Ribbon Movement in Russia. It was actually led by many journalists. Some of the journalists I interviewed before that event ended up being leaders of the movement you know, in social media, galvanizing everyone, coming out, uh, recording things, and speaking about it, and even creating a new TV station, TV Rain, which is primarily suited for dissident voices, or kind of crit critical voices in Russia. So it's a very different relationship, it's a very tense relationship, and in some ways, I would argue actually that Russian journalists play less of a democratic role in Russian society than Chinese journalists, because they have almost no influence. So Russian journalists can speak truth to power, but they're not being listened to, and society itself ignores them. So on the one hand, you have that little kind of space. On the other hand, you're not being treated seriously. You're not taken seriously. Uh, the social movements that they started also died down, and Putin is as popular as ever. So it's, it's really complex reality. But I would say that in some ways, Chinese journalists, despite their limited space, have had a more democratic effect when it comes to actually public participation in certain governance areas. So. 
Thank you. Yeah. Can we pursue that a little more? Because that's really interesting. I'm Jan Barris with the National Committee on Women's Generation. So um, I, I find this contrast really interesting mm -hmm. that you can, in, in Russia, lots of journalists can make all these great comments and people don't pay attention to them. Do you think that partially it's the government is not just using it so they can say that they're democratic, mm -hmm. but also they realize that at least for Western mentality, and I'm not sure where I place Russia in that context, but when a government reacts or overreacts to something, that stimulates the population's interest in mm -hmm. something. So Russia could be very cleverly just, or the Russian leaders, just ignoring all this. Mm -hmm and assume that people's attention will be diverted to other things. But whereas if they come down really hard on it, that stirs up the public and says, oh, well, maybe these journalists have a point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that part yeah, of the dynamic? Definitely. It's, I think it's actually a really important point that speaks to the Chinese scenario, where we often think about the Chinese state, you know, we think about Chinese politics, which is about resilience, but authoritarian resilience, they're going to be there forever, they're super strong. If you think about the kind of resources and time and uh, people that it takes to keep responding to public concerns and to constantly acknowledge them and to you know, go back and forth with the public is actually really challenging. I think it's quite fragile because the public expects now that Russian, Chinese states or will respond to their, their concerns and demands, whereas the Russian public does not expect that very much. So yes, in terms of ignoring, in some ways it's a cost-effective strategy. Instead of engaging with it, just ignore until you know maybe things become really big. The, the challenge with that is that if you do end up um, ignoring for too long, and then a big social movement arises, how do you deal with that? That's when it's really difficult. And I think in some ways, Putin was struck by surprise um, in 2011, 2012, as so many people came out against him uh, because he was ignoring all those things <laughs> for a very long time. So now there's a little bit more caution, but also increasing censorship in Russia. Russia is learning a lot of taxes from China uh, in terms of control of the media, and I think there's more concern with preempting certain things from happening as opposed to kind of only controlling them post-facto. And that's post-social movement, it's, it's a reaction to this big protest. There's also the point that by paying attention to it, so for instance, I would argue that if Putin Powell, uh, I'm sorry, if Johnson had not reacted so very strongly to following mm home, -hmm. then it wouldn't have become such a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. It was by paying attention to something you highlighted, it right. you and everybody's curious, so it, yeah, a smaller scale example of that is a, a talk show in China called Papi Diang, I think some of you are really watching, it's pretty fun, she's a feminist, a really cool talk show host and speaker, and speaks really fast and very dynamic, and uh, like, yeah, a little faster than me, so today I slow down, really appreciate it, anyway, so she, she's fantastic, and uh, she, her show was censored for a certain period of time. And when they censored the show, she got more followers. As soon as they opened it up again, she got a lot more followers because people were intrigued. So censorship brings intrigue. And I think that's partially why, you know, this kind of things get backfired. They don't always work. I was uh, Bob Peterzak of Sylvia Austin and National um, How was your field work you received in Russia? It's a good question. Fun one to talk about. I was receiving different challenges in the two contexts. So in the case of China, I spent more time there. So I went back and forth over, I think, I think it was about six years of writing my dissertation and a postdoc, so going back and forth and hopefully building trust with many people and becoming friends with many of them and caring about a lot of them. So it became really close for me. They became kind of part of my life. Um, the challenge in China is that, of course, you're an outsider. And obviously, I don't know Chinese, and there's constant suspicion of, OK, who is this person? So even though they embrace you, they also have to worry about themselves. So an example of one of those conferences that I think Vivian was there as well, when uh, you know, as soon as they saw two, saw two foreign faces, it was me and our mutual friend, Philippe, was a co-organizer who got kicked out like in one minute of that conference. And I flew all the way from the UK to attend that event. The organizer, Professor Zhang Jiang, who's an amazing human being and activist and scholar who we all love, uh, he said, don't worry, you should come. He's like, you must come. I said, okay, he says so, I will come. So I organized everything, got my fellowship, I got my 500 pounds for the ticket, I'm good. I arrive, and two minutes later, I'm out of the door. So I sat in the hallway for a while, trying to track down people who came out of the building and the rooms, trying to kind of embrace them and say, hey, you know, I'm right here. But that only got, you know, got me through like two hours. Because then the police came and said, we really need to get out of here. So then I tried the second day, I went back there. 
but I'm still here. So no, you need to leave. <laughs> so the only things I managed to attend were the informal sessions, which are actually more interesting. But still, it's like the example of that is that sometimes you just don't know what to expect. And you also have to, have to be cautious about getting your friends in trouble, getting your colleagues in trouble. Because sometimes they think this is fine, but once you get there, it's not. And they don't really anticipate that they might get in trouble because of you, and then they feel embarrassed, and you almost have to kind of think that through ahead of time, you know, about them as well. In the case of Russia, obviously uh, less of a fitting in problem because I, you know, have a, I can look Russian, I guess, not exactly, but I can pass for Russian. And my Russian is native speaker kind of level, so I don't have an issue with that. So they think I'm Russian. So the, the problem there is that they treat you as a Russian kind of intruder almost who's living outside of Russia. So a lot of questions at the beginning were like, are you with us or against us? And I was like, my God, was, this is really intense. The first question is like, with us or against us? It's like, what do you mean? So, who's asking? Journalists. So and before accepting the interview, they wanted to interview me. There was like pure interrogation. So this one guy I remember coming into Nova Gazeta, the most daring investigative newspaper in Russia. He was smoking a huge cigar. He was really arrogant. He said, "Sit down." I'm like, "Okay, but let me ask you questions." He's like, "I'm asking you questions." I was like, "Okay." So then he started, and a lot of questions were, you know, really intense of how I think about the world, where I come from, like, what's my story, why do I not live in Russia, what do I think about Russia. So after seven questions, he said, "Okay, now you can ask me questions." But okay, so I asked him questions, but it was really intimidating and kind of harsh. And a lot of encounters were like that. It's almost like you were outside. Why did you leave? So why why are you not here? You were almost treated as a kind of a traitor, like you left the country. And I think maybe for Chinese returnees it's different because a lot of people embrace like someone who returns, but in Russia they see you as kind of someone who left. And, like you shouldn't even be here. Like you're not welcome here anymore. So that's that was quite difficult and sometimes aggressive. So. The dimension I found in some ways more challenging than the Chinese kind of outsider point of view. Sure. Yes. John Lowith from the National Committee. I'm struck, I mean, I'm, I'm curious how these constructs apply to Chinese journalists reporting abroad mm -hmm. and foreign journalists reporting in China because you've got now kind of two systems colliding. So any, any comments yeah. about that, how that works? So I'm starting to work on actually Chinese journalists abroad and China's global media construction, kind of image construction and expansion, which is that's my new sort of project that I'm involved in. So I'm looking into it a little bit in more detail now. But in terms of their um, restrictions, it depends. And if they're working for state media, uh, they are under quite close oversight from the government. But at the same time, if you're reporting on issues that have not, nothing to do with China, so about the world, oftentimes you have more flexibility. And also if you're reporting in English about China, you also have more flexibility. So the example of the Sixth Tone is out of Shanghai. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to it, but it's, it's a pretty fascinating venture. It's owned by the state, and it's part of the same idea, the same enterprise compact. They write only in English, and their Chinese and foreign reporters working for it. And they get away with a lot more, I think, than many Chinese newspapers and um, initiatives do these days, because they write in English, because not Chinese. In terms of, you know, say, banning the website of... Oh, of Chinese media? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not super effective, though, because I don't know how many people read all this Chinese media, right? <laughs> I mean, if you think about the popularity, like a lot of Chinese journalists I spoke to in terms of their global reach, they're very concerned that they're not being read. Um, they're not being that as influential as they would like to be, and their core audience is America. That's where they're focusing most of the resources, and they have have a really hard time competing here for many reasons, right? They're not surprising. So I think banning their websites wouldn't really do that much. I mean, it would hurt their ego, and if it look bad, like it's a really bad public diplomacy kind of act, it would definitely make them look bad. But in terms of the actual effect of that, I'm not sure. And it would make us look bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it looks, it looks like you were also going down to the level of censor. Mm -hmm. And that looks very bad for Western democratic kind of values and all of that. So in some ways, ways that's been discussed in Rwanda is not to do a one-for-one -one ban on journalists, but to prevent the publishers and senior people at the media, whether it's the television station or the newspaper or the magazine or whatever. And in that case, you're not you're holding true to the American ideal of the free press because you're still allowing the journalists to be here and not kicking them out, but yet you're showing displeasure of our government about the fact that we're being someone's persecuted, but trying to target it differently. We can talk about it if you want. Come up with a plan. 
over the media, mm -hmm. uh, across the board, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, could you, I mean, highlight the, the difference between the Putin uh, house, uh, I mean, uh, approach to the media and the Xi Jinping's approach to the media? Sure. Yeah. Great question. Thanks. So, first I'll start with the differences. The first difference is there is an increasing, yeah, increasing centralization of control. So what we're seeing is that there is a movement to also kind of expand the agencies who are in charge of controlling the media. So like once in Bang, for instance, the internet uh, administration, right, is now sending messages alongside the propaganda department to various journalists. They're often getting mixed signals as well. So what, what, what should we delete? What should we think about? There are new actors that are involved in monitoring and uh, shaping media content. So there's an increasing effort to centralize control and diversify control as well. So more actors engage in that, but there's also uh, an expansion and repression when it comes to the actors who are being repressed. So for example, in the past, I think under Hu Jintao, we saw sort of detentions and um, really harsh you know, treatment of journalists, in particular when it's mostly dissidents, the kind of voices like um, like we saw here, Ai Weiwei or Liu Xiaobo, the sort of really outspoken people. But when it comes to critical reporters who are more mainstream, Nobody really talked to me about physical violence or being really scared of, you know, ending up in jail for a lifetime, which actually Russian journalists talked about quite a bit. So it's a big contrast there. But under Xi Jinping, where we just seen more cases of detentions and fears of detentions, so a lot more kind of paranoia setting in where, you know, I was interviewing certain reporters and they thought they were being followed, that we were being followed. This never happened to me when I was there in the Kuwait period. I never had a kind of an encounter like that. Whereas one of my last trips. My interview literally thought somebody next to us in the plain clothes was actually a spy who was like listening in on a conversation. So there's the, maybe that wasn't even true, but the fact that she was thinking that suggests that there's a certain change in mindset, fear, and paranoia that's coming out in journalists, primarily because of new restrictions yeah, from the, from the party. At the same time, I think not everything has changed. Uh, a lot of the dynamics when we think about journalists and state relations have remained the same. So, for instance, there's still a lot of ad hoc restrictions on journalists. Even though we're seeing more institutions involved, there are also kind of mixed signals that are happening constantly. Mixed signals between different institutions, but also when it comes to sensitive events. Still, we see something that's at first treated with some flexibility, then becomes sensitive, or vice versa. So Tianjin Explosion is a good example where a lot of the media reported on that, uh, on that event and in quite a bit of depth. But then, of course, everything got censored. So it's the same exact reaction you would expect in the Huan period, where a big disaster happens, there's an immediate kind of attempt to shape public opinion, but you can't completely get rid of information. You want something to be more open. You don't want to be hiding anything. But at the same time, once things come out, and you hear more and more critical stories, then you shut the discourse down and start framing it in a kind of pro-state way, pro-regime way. Same exact reaction. So dynamics between journalists and the state have also remained the same when it comes to journalists. So journalists are still using very similar strategies, actually, to negotiate political pressures mobilized to do social media, um, to garner information. It's pretty much very similar um, ways in which they, they operate, but trying to be even more creative because restrictions are tighter. So trying to find new loopholes, new platforms, you know, data guide to hack into police circle, things like that. that again, I haven't heard about that in Kuwait period. Maybe there was no need to do that. So the kind of creative garden conversation approach, I think, still very much depicts the relations between those actors and the party, but we are seeing the kind of space for critical reporting um, tightening and um, becoming smaller, relatively speaking, in comparison to the Cuban period. But in the Cuban era, there was a lot of comparison to previous eras, and a lot of journalists drew me graphs, kind of saying that now we're at the very, this is really bad. Like, before it was much better. So if you should have done your research in the 90s, it would have been a lot more fun, I'm sorry. I was doing something else then. I'm still here, so why are you even here? What's wrong with you? But <laughs> they would just draw me all those different like graphs and I have collections of those at home and different kind of drawings. It looked really really you know desperate, but then you look at the curing period and this graph is going down even further, so it's, it's now it's like what are you doing now? You know, what's wrong with you? Why do you research this? And then on the other hand you meet with a young Chinese journalist, like the guy who had to the police circle and others that I met were 20, 19 years old, and they're still trying to do their work in some ways, and they still think that they matter. Which to me was very moving. That you know, and one thing they said to me was that you know it's very generational as well. Someone who's older, who's like in their 50s, 60s, who's gone through this profession, who's seen the ups and downs, they have something to compare themselves to and to compare their time to. But if you're 19, you don't have any comparative points. It's like your life is here, and you're acting in the best way you can as a 19-year-old in China and being a journalist. 
So you can't really relate to those concerns of older generation. So I think it's important to also think about who's complaining, who had what experience and exposure, and not to treat everyone kind of the same, I guess, bracket. Do you have a sense of whether people are leaving the profession because it's more difficult to Yeah, absolutely. And we have some examples here. Who's making money? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people are leaving the profession and they're leaving not only because of politics, but because of lucrative opportunities in other areas. So a lot of people I spoke to is that don't mix up like kind of politics as being the key factor. It is one of the factors, but there are also opportunities now online on social media to be actually really well off as someone who can write. And which means that maybe you know you choose that path instead. But that said, there are also ways to combine the two. So I wanted to kind of show you one one slide here that speaks to that, which I find really interesting. It's a nonfiction writing pool. I don't know how many of you guys have heard of this, but in China you can actually make money as a nonfiction writer, which is something that's I don't know <laughs> I've heard of here. I don't know how to do that. But in China one can be rich even writing really good nonfiction. This guy on the right is doing really well. It's very uh, popular. He set up companies, like he set up all kinds of ways, platforms to train nonfiction writers. And nonfiction writing is not just literary writing, a lot of it is actually social issue related. They're just writing human interest stories. They're not political, but they're engaged with social matters. So, such as? Such as, for example, dealing with um, detention centers, you know, where people are mistreated and they're. Sorry, detention centers. That's they, not political. Oh, that's political, yeah. yeah. But, sorry, <laughs> let me give you another example. The detention center was the wrong one. There's like treatment. The adult treatment center, yes, the addiction treatment center. So when someone has an addiction to the internet or other things, but mostly the internet, it can be sent to the center to reform. And a lot of these centers had controversies about being, people being abused and even dying there. So that's kind of political, but not directly political. But that becomes a huge matter of discussion online. People are very concerned with this kind of facilities, like how do they work, etc. Um, another case that was investigated was about hospital violence and uh, hospitals, military hospitals outsourcing their sort of work to very dubious facilities that are actually not licensed and some people died there as well. So these kind of cases are not immediately political, but they're political in the sense that people lose trust in certain institutions, including military hospitals or centers that are often sponsored by the parties. The party kind of promotes this discourse, we should really not have addictions that's, you know, revolutionized spirit, you shouldn't have those kind of problems, that's fixed you. So then you get fixed in a way that nobody anticipated and the parents complain, it becomes a really big emotional kind of matter. So these are the kind of stories that they cover and they write about and uh, a lot of people share that this is another way of being kind of a critical journalist where you're not being a professional journalist in the sense of providing this kind of objective truth, but you're writing from perspective of one individual, one family, or one story. And the tradition of that actually started at Southern Weekend and uh, where that's where a lot of experts in this kind of genre were trained. They were journalists before. But then they transitioned to online platforms and they're writing about these matters in a different style and they can sustain themselves and survive, I think, more than a, a journalist in China. So that's just an example of how some of these things work. That sounds like what Leo Guillen did mm -hmm. decades ago. Yeah, it's, the same. It's, not a, it's not a very different thing. It's a kind of a similar strategy, but now we're using, they're using digital tools. And one of the fascinating things about China, I think, is that there is this public participation in this kind of practices where one can tip a writer if they like the story, which I think is just amazing. And you can give a little bit of money, and it's not a lot, but then you can collect all that money. And you can also collect all kinds of points, and then somebody will fund you. So you get an investor pretty quickly if you get a lot of tips. So you can also get tips as a journalist, you can get tips for a talk show. Um, it's pretty funny. <laughs> so it's, again, not a huge amount of money, but it adds up if you have like thousands and millions of people tipping you. So the idea is that you tip post factum. So you read, you like it, you tip. And then you want to read something again, you tip to read the new story. So it happens also with the science fiction writing, where someone is writing about futuristic China. They write one chapter and then they wait. And then somebody tips and says, hey, I want the second one. Okay. <laughs> I'll go ahead and type that up. And so the process itself is very kind of interactive between the users and the writers. Um, Robert Bench, uh, I think this is a phenomenon which is part of the digital uh, mobile phone publishing. Because up till a few years ago, book publishing was totally controlled by the state mm -hmm. agency for press and publication. Yeah. And for a publisher, there are only 583 authorized publishers to publish a book to get an ISBN number and then an author authorization to publish. They had to go through the agency for approval. Mm -hmm. 
this has become the self-publishing. Exactly, self-publishing. And uh, the term for this kind of platform is really more broadly self-media. Yeah. Which I think is a great term, it's just like self-produced. So of course we're seeing it here as well, there are many people who are doing that outside of China. But I think in China there's something more dynamic about that because there's a lot of money that's going into the self-media business. When I was there about two years ago, I tried an experiment of starting a little Chinese talk show myself. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's not there anymore. But it's, uh, I tried it for. Did you get tips? I did. <laughs> My first segment got like a million followers, but then the second one did not. So it was one of those. Oh, it's great. So it required a lot more work. It was really funny. But it, it, it was fun to kind of do it and then talk to Chinese um, investors and media people. Like, what would it take for me to kind of do well in this business? So, well, you have to get X amount of followers first. Then we're going to give you some money. Then this other guy will give you money. You just have to stay here. Just do it. So, oh, OK. <laughs> this is a very exciting, but I went back to PhD. So, <laughs> <laughs> wrong choices. But the idea is it's kind of accessible. And there's a lot of funding going into it. Yeah. Lewis Ho, Lion Rock Global. What's your sense and what are you hearing about the Chinese media's perception and their reaction to all the fake news here in the US? Ah, great question. Well, China had a fake news problem for much longer <laughs> than the US. And as maybe you guys remember the anti-rumors campaign that started under C, but I think it essentially was kind of preempted under Who as well. So in some ways, it's a story that also Russian journalists are talking about. It's like, hey, you know, now you understand what we mean. Like, we've had this issue for a really long time. Fake news is not a new thing for us. It's been a, a problem, a challenge. But at the same time, in the case of China, but maybe partially in the US too, it's used sort of also as a, kind of as a tool to blame another party or to marginalize someone. So in the case of China, right, they enter rumors campaign. It's hard to say sometimes who's blamed for truly spreading a rumor and who's blamed because they're trying to be, they're trying to get rid of them as a, as an online public 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 intellectual or a speaker or perform the certain ideas. So I think there's kind of this mixed feeling when it comes to the real fake news story in China. But when they observe the U.S., I think there's on behalf of intellectuals like the liberal minded Chinese, there's a lot of disappointment. And I've heard that a lot over the past summer that we really cannot believe what's happening here. This was the model we aspired to. This is where we spend time studying. This is where we wanted to live. This is like the place we wanted to be. And so seeing the election of Trump and seeing like what's happening here in the public sphere and the kind of attacks on the media and jokes on Twitter and not funny jokes and all those things, it's just really, really like disheartening for them because they don't quite know what to turn to. Like who do we see as a model? Like who do we try to kind of measure ourselves up against? Um, and that's been a big, big disappointment, I think, for, for the more liberal-minded intellectuals. But I think for Chinese government, it's a great opportunity to you know, showcase that democracy is not any better than a one-party state, and in fact, it might be worse, and basically there's no need to compare ourselves to the US. We can be the ones um, finding our own path and stimulating uh, a lot of admiration from other countries, and there's no need to kind of measure up to the US. I was going to ask a, a mirror question that Margot asked you. She asked about journalists who are leaving the field because of these issues mm -hmm. or um, because of the space is being constricted. What about the younger generation that's interested in journalism, whether as an idealist because they want to do what we would consider to be doing? Um, or maybe because they see it is lucrative if you work for the state and be a good, um, compliant journalist who can do well. So it, are there people, are journalism schools doing well, or are they looking around for students? So I think the phenomenon of journalism students not going to journalism is kind of a global thing. So I was in one of those seminars where there was a comparison drawn between the West, the US, and China, and both of the organizers, one Chinese, one American, were complaining how you train all those journalism students, but they don't want to be journalists. And I think that's the kind of a trend across, across wide. Same, same thing in China, where most students will go into public relations or other more lucrative opportunities, basically, because journalism doesn't pay as well as those things. And uh, it's more stressful. A lot of them talk about stress, especially women. So it's stressful. I don't know how long I can do this. Um, you know, maybe it's kind of a generational thing. Maybe I can do years, but if I go into PR, it's more stable, I can live in Beijing, I don't have to travel, I can have a family, and all the things that society expects of women to do, essentially. So in this case, I think it's, it's cross-regional, kind of cross, uh, cross-national kind of dynamic. 
But the ones who do end up being interested, they're interested for different reasons, depending on what kind of journalism and pursuit they're, they're engaging in. The ones who go for state media, it's actually very stable tools, and they have a lot of benefits, um, all kinds of benefits that they get from state media work. So some of them, many of them I spoke to over the summer, are really brilliant people. They're young and um, very well-educated, kind of the elites of China. But they're also a little bit bored. <laughs> so many talked about just not having enough agency to do creative work within state media enterprises, even if it concerns the world, if it's about global issues. They're still having to kind of live under this really tight bureaucracy of uh, large state media. So as much as they can be creative, they're probably going to be crashed or clamped down or narrowed down by higher <coughs> leaders who don't really believe in that creativity is important, who still think that you should just channel one party voice that's quite dull and bureaucratic. So, but then they go for that and they get stuck in that system. So many of them want to quit and go somewhere else, but then they're afraid that with that reputation of working for state media, they won't be kind of taken seriously in more creative enterprises or in commercialized media. Because they're kind of seen as party, you know, sort of party offices living in a comfort zone, so who wants to hire them? So many of them are struggling with identity. What do you do? Or do you quit? Where do you go? And those who tend to go for more investigative ventures, they're, they're of course, the very few. They're marginal, but at the same time, their ideals are kind of similar to the ideals that journalists talked about during the movement period. This notion of small-scale change, incremental change, and kind of alluring on letting society know about certain failures and also presenting certain voices of disadvantaged groups. A lot of those individuals come from poor backgrounds. So they have gone through a really difficult time, um, poor provinces, um, hardships in the family, and so all sorts of things that kind of motivate them to represent those voices and less privileged in that sense. There are people who just come from an elite school and say, hey, I just want to be this journalist. Like, I've seen a lot of things and I want to talk about them and have a channel to do that. So that's the, the contrast there. We have run out of time. So <laughs> thank you very much, everybody, for coming. And thank you, Maria, for speaking with us. Thank you.